Hello, my ghoul friends. Glenda, Queen of Horror here. Hope all is well on this frightful night. Are you all ready for Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas? Long live the Pumpkin Queen, Chapter 2. Well, duh, of course you are. Why wouldn't you be? <laughs> well, sit back, relax, and let's get reading. Chapter 2 We fall headlong through the doorway, as if caught in a hollowed breeze, until at last we spill out the other side, landing in Valentinestown, a place wholly unfamiliar and strange. Quickly, I run my fingers down my legs, checking my threads and seams to be sure none have split or tugged loose. Then I breathe in the gentle sweet scent of sugar chocolate and roses in bloom. Surrounding us stands a grove of trees, nearly identical to our own, seven trees grown in a circle, one for each of the seven holidays. Yet the forest overhead is thick with tall swaying branches, green leaves, and tiny white flowers stirring loose with each gust of wind. Nothing like the bony, leafless trees that populate the woods in Halloween Town. Jack weaves his fingers through mine, grinning curiously, like he's just sprung from a shadow and frightened a ghost back into the dark, one of his favorite pastimes. And we follow the winding path out of the forest, away from the grove of the seven trees. I run my fingertips along the dusty pink poppies and vibrant blood-red roses that line the path. And when we finally step free of the dense forest, I peer up at a cloudless sky shimmering a soft, airy pink. It's daylight here, I comment, surprised. When we left Halloween Town, it was night. Every town has its own keeping of time, of sunrises and sunsets, Jack says, waving a hand toward the sky. They're called time zones. I squeeze his hand tighter, feeling briefly off-centered, like my seams are tugging too tightly against my skin. Traveling from one town to another, one time zone to another, is strangely disorienting, and my head whirls and spins as if I might tip over. Where's their graveyard? I ask as we follow the path through a rose-studded meadow nearing the edge of the town. In Halloween Town, our graveyard rests on the outer border near the gate, where the howling voices of the dead can be heard echoing through the streets each night and I expected to see one by now. If their cemetery is too far away, how will they ever be able to hear the tormented spirits of the dead? Not every holiday town has a graveyard, Jack explains, giving me a wink, 
But look at all the hearts! He points a bone-sharp finger toward an iron gate up ahead. Hundreds of tiny hearts forged into the woven silvery metal. On either side of the gate sit two cherry blossom trees. The branches grown or may be trimmed into the shape of a massive towering heart. It's an odd, unnatural sight, though certainly beautiful. And I wonder if here in Valentine's Town, all plants grow into such unusual shapes. The trees sway and bob in the wind, releasing their tiny blossoms into the air. What do the hearts mean? I ask. Apparently, Valentine's Day is a holiday that happens every every February. Jack raises the bones above his eyes into his forehead, and humans surprise one another with sweets and roses, and poorly written love poems. Why? Who knows? Jack grins, tossing his gaze toward the town. But isn't it wonderful? And truthfully, Valentine's Town is unexpectedly charming in an odd, sideways sort of way. No sooty sky or charcoal buildings teetering in the distance. No rotted skulls or jack-o'-lanterns growing sinisterly in the dark. No cackling ghouls or demons or grim reapers with hollowed-out eyes watching us from shadowed corners. In fact, there are no dark places at all. Instead, everything is bright and confectioner sugar shiny. The air has a pink, dreamy quality, a subtly sweet tinge, like rosebuds newly bloomed in spring, or the first lick of pumpkin pie filling on a spoon. It all seems twisted up and spit out wrong. Yet my eyes sway from one hedged rose bush to another, my heart lilting in my chest in a way that makes me dizzy. This place is something entirely unfamiliar, and undeniably delightful. We pass through the heart-forged gate. And I can feel my seams relax just a little, my dead leaves settle in my chest. When the sky is blotted out above us, a mass of birds flock toward the town, muting the candy-tinted sun. But when I squint up at them, trying to make sense of their odd shape, I realize that they're not birds at all. It's a flock of small baby-like creatures, five of them, fluttering above, rosy-cheeked and plump-bellied, with tiny wooden bows and heart-shaped arrows strapped in sheaths at their small backs, white wings flapping. What are they? I ask. No idea. Jack replies with a grin, but they either don't notice us or don't care, and they continue their flight toward the shimmering mass of buildings ahead. The worn dirt path soon becomes a cobblestone street, taking us straight into the heart of Valentine's Town. 
and my eyes widened, not wanting to miss a single detail of the white chalky stone homes that lined the street. They look almost edible, with pink tiled roofs and heart-framed windows, and the stained glass reminds me of melted sugar, like you could press your tongue to it and it would surely taste sweet. I feel myself grinning as widely as Jack, urging him on until at last we reach the town center, marked by a stone fountain with a carved cherry-cheeked baby at the top, identical to the flock of baby creatures we saw flying overhead just outside of town. I lean against the edge of the fountain, peering down at the water which glistens a pale candy pink nothing like the swampy green fountain back in Halloween Town. My reflection staring back. Do you think we can drink it? I ask, inching my hand closer to the water, certain it will taste like icing and marigold petals. But before my fingertips can break the surface, a cool velvety voice speaks behind us. It's nice to see two lovers in town. I straighten and look up and up until at last meeting the gaze of a woman who is a good foot taller than Jack. She is a tower wearing a long chiffon gown with tiny white embroidered hearts stitched into the cream fabric of her skirt. Her strawberry red hair is coiled up into a honeycomb beehive with a gold heart barrette clipped softly at her temple. Visiting from elsewhere, she asks vaguely, tapping her rosebud lips with a long painted fingernail. Her skin is a soft pinkish hue, as if she's been eating too many rose petals and it has begun to change the color of her flesh. I'm Jack Skellington, my husband announces, sticking out his hand. The Pumpkin King from Halloween Town. And this is my bride, Sally, the Pumpkin Queen. Yes, yes, good, she replies, ignoring his hand, as if she's uninterested in our names or the details of why we're here. She cares more about her own introduction. I'm Queen Ruby Valentino, and this is my town. She trails a long, elegant hand along one side of her dress in a flourished, wide-sweeping curtsy. I marvel at how poised she is, abloom with confidence. Even the features of her face are neat and organized, not a stray of freckle out of place. She is a visage of what I've imagined, perfect royalty etiquette might look like, and I suddenly feel quite unqueenlike in her presence. It's our first visit to Valentine's Town, Jack replies cheerfully, shoulders back, undaunted by this woman's regal demeanor. But Ruby's eyes suddenly snap away from her from us. Gah! she exclaims, a bleeding heart! Paolo! 
Apollo, I told you to rip these out as soon as you see them. A slim, high-waisted man appears, as if he'd been crouched behind Ruby, awaiting any command she might thrust upon him. Wearing an apron, a straw sun hat, and long pale slacks, and clutching a pair of gardening shears in his dirt-stained hand, he wipes at his forehead quickly. So so sorry, your royal highness. I must have missed this one. Ruby gracefully bends toward the ground, despite her heavy gown and high heels, plucking a single flower with a blood-red center that had been growing up between the stone pavers that surround the fountain. She holds the flower up for us to see. Can't have these bleeding hearts growing so near the fountain," she says, her mouth contorting into a disgusted little sneer. I blink at the tiny, harmless-looking flower, pinched between her fingers, summoning the question inside me, as if I am a child afraid to speak. Why is that? My voice sounds much too small, meager, and weak. Not the words of a queen. Ruby flicks her gaze to me, her sneer softening. The cupids dip their arrows into the fountain, of course. She says it like I should already know this, and I gaze down into the water. Light shimmering across the surface, like little pink diamonds. Our love potion. Bubbles up from a natural spring beneath the fountain. She raises her perfectly plucked eyebrows at me. If a bleeding heart flower made its way into the fountain, then everyone who was struck by a cupid's arrow on Valentine's Day would suffer a broken heart instead of falling in love. She tosses the flower onto the ground and crushes it. With the toe of her lollipop red high-heeled shoe, when she le- lifts her foot, Paulo, the man who stands with hands wringing beside her, quickly skitters forward and retrieves the flattened flower from the ground. "I'll burn it immediately," he says, then scurries off. Ruby smiles softly, pleased, then tilts her gaze back at Jack and me. Do you have a place to stay? Jack clears his throat. <clears throat> Not yet. Follow me, she says with a flourish. Her voice now a sing-song, a collection of musical notes, as though a bird is resting at the back of her throat, and she leads us away from the fountain. We pass a cafe where the scent of rising dough fills the air, and a dentist's office with a painted window that reads "Half Price Cavity Repair." Then, in smaller print, "Free Lollipop with Each Tooth Removal." The people who stroll past us, doughy-eyed and full-cheeked. Always seem to be in pairs, arms woven together, secret words whispered into each other's ears. They sit side by side on cafe patios, 
faces nestled together, kisses planted on bare necks, and many of them have tulips pinned at their lapels and tucked neatly into shirt pockets, while others have wildflowers braided into their hair. Love is imbued into every seam and stitch of this town. It's inescapable. And I feel the dead leaves in my chest swelling and swimming at the sight of it all. Another block more, and Ruby stops in front of a brick building above us. The swaying wooden sign reads, Love Bird Inn. Wait here, she says, winking, then disappears into the narrow doorway. Moments later, she reappears, clutching a silver key. You'll be staring in one of the cottages around back. They're perfectly quaint and well-appointed. You should be quite happy there. Jack smiles, taking the key from her. Splendid! Thank you. Ruby resecures a stray pin that has come loose from her wavy cherry red hair. Just as her eyes flash upward, slow down, she shouts above us a clot of the winged babies flutter over the town before disappearing into the distance. Ruby lets out an irritated sigh. Ah, the cupids are so unruly this time of year. Restless little troublemakers. She gives me a look as if I should have an idea of what she's talking about. They grow bored with nothing to do, just waiting for February, for Valentine's Day. So they fly in packs, stirring up all sorts of mischief. She blows out a quick breath through her nostrils. Cupids can only be trusted on Valentine's Day. The rest of the year, they're an awful nuisance. Ruby peers at me with her soft chocolate eyes, gaze roving from my feet to the top of my head, like she's surveying my appearance for the first time. She tilts her head and plants a delicate hand on her hips. Your hair is a little dull for a queen, she remarks. My stylist could weave in a few curls, maybe a highlight or two. Have you looking a little more? She taps a fingernail against her bottom lip. Well, like me, a smile spreads. Barks in her cheer, clear, dewy eyes. I'd be happy to make an appointment for you while you're here. I shake my head quickly, not liking the prying feel of her eyes on me, the sharp, appraising look. I don't think I start picking at the loose thread on my left wrist, making it worse. No, thank you. She shrugs, turning her attention up the street, where two lovers are entangled in the doorway of a chocolate shop. A tall, lean, dark-haired man, reciting words to a man with curly blonde hair and freckles. A poem that it seems he's written himself. The words scribbled onto a pink piece of. 
paper, and he holds in his palm. Ruby sighs softly, as if caught in the sweetness of the moment. The tenderness between two people madly, deliriously in love. She wipes at her eye as if a tear is about to fall. Then, she turns to look back at Jack and me. Say, she begins, her eyelashes flitting. You two wouldn't happen to know someone named William Shakespeare? Jack lifts the bones above his hollow eyes. Sorry, no. Ruby lets out a long, troubled sigh, puckering her full painted lips. He writes the most beautiful sonnets, and I'm certain he is my one true love. But I'm having a terrible time finding him. Jack pauses, and we share a look. There are many books in Jack's library written by William Shakespeare. Beautiful, often tragic stories. But they are rather old. And I'm certain William Shakespeare is good and dead. Quite some time ago now. But I give Jack a quick shake of my head, not wanting to break Ruby's heart by telling her as much. If we come across him, Jack adds with a gentle smile, we'll certainly send him your way. Thank you, Ruby's mouth curves upward, even while her eyes betray a glimmer of sadness. I hope you both enjoy your stay with us. It should be a lovely day to stroll the city. Make sure you stop at Romeo's Delicatessen. They make the most divine caramel teardrops you've ever had in your life. I have no idea what a caramel teardrop is, but I'm certain Romeo's Delicatessen is named after Romeo from Shakespeare's play Romeo and Juliet, a reminder of the man who Ruby has never met. But loves anyway. She gives us a quick curtsy before turning away and sauntering down the cobblestone street. I watch her a moment as she stops to speak to shop owners and townspeople, shaking hands, a queenly silhouette against the sugared heart curved backdrop of her town. I'm certain I don't cast quite as striking a queenly figure in Halloween Town. I'm all rounded edges and dead leaves spilling out from lucent seams. I am nothing like her. A sharp blade of doubt edges into my thoughts. Maybe I am more unprepared for this role than I realized. But Jack folds his hands over mine, and the look of excitement in his eyes forces my own stirring thoughts to retreat. We find the path that winds around Lovebird Inn, to where a dozen small cottages sit like kisses, nestled between the tall grass and rustling white pine trees. Jack slides the key into the lock of. Cottage number five, set on the far left of the others. Who else comes to stay here? I ask curiously. 
anyone, I suppose," he says. "Those from other holidays who pass through the doorways and want a weekend away, a vacation." We push into the little cottage and are met with the scent of vanilla jasmine, candles, and rose petals scattered along the wood floor. Jack places our suitcase beside the bed. Why does no one come to Halloween Town to visit? I ask, walking to the lace curtain and pulling it back to look out on Valentine's Town. We don't have an inn. Jack's eyes lift, his peculiar smile curling upward. But perhaps we should. Tourism might be good for the town. I let the curtain fall back into place, and Jack crosses the room, taking my hands in his. There's so much to see, he says at last, kissing my palm, and not a moment to waste. With our suitcase now deposited into our cottage, we venture back out into Valentine's Town. The day is a whirl of chocolate confections. Dipped in hazelnuts and caramelized brown sugar, raspberries coated in white chocolate, and chalky little hearts with words stamped onto their surface: "Love Bug, Sweet Pea, X O X O." We eat them by the handful, our cheeks flushed from the sugar, chests thumping wildly. We even pass a factory where the hearts are made. Stacks of little pink boxes lined up in the windows, surely to be delivered to the human world once Valentine's Day arrives. Even the air smells sweet. I say, popping a cherry truffle into my mouth as we wander the cobbled streets, feeling the chocolates. Break apart on my tongue. Jack takes my hand and twirls me in a circle. I knew you would love it here. I think how heavenly it must be to nibble on tiny cakes and swirled caramels and plum ginger puffs all day. Tea with lemon petite fours in the afternoon. After dinner, mint truffles with butterscotch coffee in the evening. My mind swims with the notion of it—the easy sugar-induced lull that would follow me into candy-tinted dreams each night. Life here in Valentine's Town would surely be simple and uncomplicated. Outside a small patisserie, the window display filled with trays of butter cookies. A squat woman is ordering a box of meringues from the gray-mustached man in the doorway, and beside her is a lace-trimmed pram filled with three wailing babies. They all have a twirl of dark hair atop their otherwise bald heads, skin the color of figs, just like the woman, with lips stained a bright pink, and a 
dusting of powdered sugar along their fingertips and white bibs. I bend down and touch the chubby hand of one of the crying infants, and it immediately grabs my pointed finger and squeezes, giggling, showing its gummy toothless mouth. The other two infants stop crying and peer up at me with their moon saucer eyes, all all three gazing at me, as if they were looking at the night sky in wonder. Well done, the squat woman remarks, nodding down at me. They usually don't quiet for anything, but sweets. But they certainly like you. She places her box of cookies atop the little awning of the pram. Are they cupids? I ask, curious, why these babies are tucked into a pram, while we've seen others flying through town with tiny bows and arrows. They will be once they grow their wings. She answers, bending down to straighten the white ruffle tunic. On the third baby in the back, have a sweet day," she says to me, smiling before starting to push the pram away. The baby releases my finger and begins making a fussing sound, followed by a full wail. But the woman keeps pushing them up the cobbled street, humming to the infants in a gentle, sugary sing-song. I wonder if some day Jack and I will. Ever have our own pram filled with tiny skeletons and rag dolls? The scuttle of little feet through the house, skeleton boys tumbling down the spiral stairs, little rag doll girls with their threads coming loose, always needing their fingers and toes stitched back together—a perfectly grim little family. Jack plucks a single lavender rose growing beside the patisserie, then holds it out to me. For the Queen of Halloween Town, he says with a goofy little tip of his head, as if he likes the sound of it. Queen, but the word echoes along the walls of my fabric insides, making me shiver. Still. I take the flower from him and bring it to my nose, all soft petals and a silky springtime scent. Jack weaves his fingers back through mine and whisks me up the street, away from the main center of town, and down a winding path through a thicket of stargazer flowers that opens up to a wide river. Four small wooden boats sit tied to the shore, and Jack climbs into the bow of one with a lavender heart painted on the side, then takes hold of an oar. I don't think we should. I say, we don't know who they belong to. We'll only borrow it. He replies with a wink, and I can't help smiling back. He takes my hand and helps me into the teetering little boat. We push off from the shore, and I dip my hand down into the water. But the surface is thick, like mud. What is it? I ask. Jack runs a finger along the top, then brings it to his mouth. Chocolate.
he sinks his hand in again, then leans forward to place a dollop of warm melted chocolate on the end of my nose. I laugh, wiping it clean, then scoop up a handful of chocolate river and lob it in his direction. He ducks just in time, barely missing it and grinning widely. But he doesn't see the next wad of chocolate I launch toward him, and it splats right across his bone-white face. A deep rolling belly laugh rises inside me, and I buckle forward, giggling so hard. I fear I might split one of my seams. Jack is still laughing when I climb over the narrow bench seat separating us and kiss him square on the lips. Tasting the sugary sweetness of dark chocolate. Thank you for bringing me here, I whisper against his mouth. He smiles. We can spend our lives exploring the other holidays together as king and queen. He kisses me again, his hand tracing the seam along my right cheekbone. But the word catches in my chest again. Queen, like a thorn pricking at my linen flesh, digging in deeper, burrowing. I can't seem to shake it. I'm still not used to it, I admit softly, leaning back against the side of the boat. What? Jack asks. Being called a queen. Jack rests the oars on the edge of the boat and leans forward, letting the current pull us through the canals of Valentine's Town, along the boardwalk, lined with cafes and chocolate shops, and even a greeting card store with handmade paper cards fluttering in the window. Halloween Town has never had a queen before, he says, tracing the stitching along my palm with his bony finger. You are the first. His dark, moonless eyes stare into mine, rooting me to him. And I feel a comfort in his gaze I've never known in anything else. You are now the queen of all of Halloween. I bite the side of my cheek, lowering my chin. What if I don't know how to be queen? What if I do it all wrong? I peer at Jack through my eyelashes, afraid to meet his gaze dead on. Ruby Valentino was so charming and flawless and queen-like, and I don't know if I can be like that. Jack reveals a half-smirk glancing at me through his hooded eyes. You're not the queen of Valentine's Town. You are the queen of Halloween Town. He lifts his chin and smiles fully. And since you are the very first queen, you get to decide how you want to rule. He kisses my palm, lingering there before lifting his eyes to mine again. You are the pumpkin queen, Sally. You can do whatever you want. I nod, wanting to believe him, needing to, because the doubt churning in my stomach feels like tomb beetles tunneling through the corpse 
in the graveyard, breaking me apart. He shifts closer, the boat rocking beneath us, and he kisses me again, the coolness of his lips, soothing my rumbling thoughts for the tiniest of moments. He kisses me deeper, wrapping his palm around my back along the seam of my spine, and I feel anchored to him, my fabric flesh bound to the cold of his skeleton bones. His fingers find my neck, my jaw, and I feel myself breaking, melting, sinking beneath his touch. Like he will never let me go. Like we could stay this way forever, drifting down a chocolate river. I tell myself to forget who I'm supposed to be. Because right now, I am simply a ragdoll in a boat with a skeleton whom I love, madly, feverishly floating through a town where my title doesn't matter. Queen, 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 where no one knows who I am. At last, Jack lifts his mouth from mine, and little sparks blink behind my threaded eyelashes. I want to pull him back to me, tell him not to let me go. But the boat has shifted, slowed against a clot of chocolate truffles along the bank, and Jack lifts the oars, steering us back into the center of the river where the chocolate current takes us beyond the edge of town, winding into a small rose-hued forest. I sink back against the bow of the boat, letting my arm drape over the side, watching Jack row with each perfect stroke of his arms. A bead of sweat glinting on his forehead, I tilt my eyes back and stare up at the perfectly blue sky, wanting to lose myself in a daydream and the foolish idea that we could stay here in Valentine's Town forever. Two cupids flutter past overhead, a thin line of heart glitter trailing down behind them. I like it here, in the quiet of this strange forest, where pink tulips grow wild beneath the canopy of trees, and hearts have been carved into the white elms with names etched into the bark. Jack plus Sally forever. We watch the cotton candy pink sunset fade beyond the trees outside town, sipping glasses of muddled tulip wine, then collapse onto the feathery soft bed inside the cottage, giggling, hands entwined, and I'm certain no moment could ever be as perfect as this. The swimming in my chest, Jack reciting nonsense poems, then laughing to himself. I want this to last forever. I want it to always be just Jack and me, side by side, until the end of time. But when I finally drift off to sleep, my dreams are fitful and strange. I dream of Halloween Town, pulled into a nameless darkness. I wander the streets alone, struggling to make sense of each building, 
calling out to Jack, searching for him in the shadowed dark of our home, in Dr. Finkelstein's lab, even on Spiral Hill, where we shared our first kiss. I grow desperate. Fear edging along my seams. I stand in the center of town and I scream. The echo of it rattles in my ears, my chest, and I bolt awake. The blankets pulled up to my throat. Jack sound asleep beside me. I relax my fingers against the pale pink blanket embroidered with little hearts and turn onto my side, peering at the small square window. A dim pastel light is breaking through the tree slanting into our little cottage. It's already morning, but my dream of Halloween town, of the darkness that slunk along dusty corners, a terror building in my throat lingers inside me, unshakable. Jack stirs beside me, reaching out a hand to stroke his fingers through my hair. Good morning, my wife, he says softly. I turn to meet his eyes, the coldness rimmed around their dark center, familiar in a way I don't think I will ever tire of. Good morning, husband, I echo. He pulls me closer, and we stay this way for a, for a time, his breath against my ear, a moment I don't dare shatter with words by telling him of the dream, of the nerves bouncing along my stitched ribs. But soon the birds begin to chatter from the trees, and the sounds of Valentinestown waking echo through the trees. Reaching us in the quiet of the cottage, our honeymoon is over. After breakfast, of butterscotch pancakes with caramel syrup, Jack carries our suitcase through the cottage door, and we make our way beyond the edge of Valentinestown, back to the grove of seven trees. I pause and glance over my shoulder, the scent of sugar cookies dipped in chocolate hanging in the air. I still hold the lavender rose Jack picked for me yesterday. But the farther we walk from Valentine's Town, the more the petals begin to wilt, turning dry in my hand. It won't last, but the time we return to Halloween Town, it will surely be dead. A flower that is only meant for this world. Ready to go home? Jack says with a grin once we've entered the circle of trees. I wish we could stay a little longer. I admit. He pulls open the door with the orange pumpkin etched into it. Halloween is only two weeks away, he reminds me. We need to get back. I nod, tilting my eyes up to the branches one last time, where the wind has shaken loose molecule-sized flowers and set them free on the warm air. But we'll return he assures, holding out his hand for me to take. I had been nervous about leaving Halloween Town, but now, only a day later, I find I'm not ready to go back. Still, I take Jack's hand, and we step through the small doorway, 
a whirl of tiny pumpkins spinning past my vision, and in an instant were whisked back to Halloween Town. And that concludes chapter two. Thank you, my ghoul friends, for tuning in, and I hope you will be looking forward to chapter three. But for now, sweet nightmares.